Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we're glad to be back uh, after a week reprieve there due to the extreme weather. Uh, But that gave us plenty of things to talk about uh, that we'll see in a moment as we move forward with this uh, uh, episode of the show. Uh, But I want to welcome you today and to remind you that Uh, You can listen to the show right here on KTRL 90.5 each week on Sunday at noon, uh, as well as live streaming through tarletonradio.com. And then if you miss any part of the show or you'd like to go back and look at previous episodes, uh, we are on SoundCloud. Uh, you can look up on politics at Eric, with Eric Morrow and look at the the schedule of previous shows and listen that way, or you can download as a podcast uh, wherever you get your podcast, uh, as well as articles related to the topics uh, that we discuss on the show each week uh, on our Facebook page. That's on politics with Eric Morrow. So today we are turning to something that came up as a part of the um, Snowvid or extreme weather or however you want to refer to it, that uh, iced down the state for uh, a few days and and then also left many people without power and water. Uh, and, and and we still have some, I think, that are, uh, that are struggling to get that back on track, especially in rural areas of the state. Uh, but in this um, uh, uh, kind of cataclysmic event that happened that impacted uh, everything from supply chains to uh, 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 people's uh, quality of life, their well-being, because we had had uh, uh, there were some deaths associated with this with hypothermia uh, because people's power uh, was not on. I mean, just significant impact across the state. Uh, it's not something that that is just all of a sudden happened, even though the impact was. This is an issue that some have been giving attention to for a while now with concerns about uh, the uh, provision of electricity in the state, how it's managed, and and how do we uh, adjust and and accommodate some of the extremes that we do see uh, in this state. And so I have with us today Dr. Ann Eggleston, who is one of our political science faculty here at Tarleton State, and she is also the director of the Center for Environmental Studies here at Tarleton. She works on environmental law and policy issues at all levels of government, from local to international, and specializes in the intersection of environmental policy and energy policy issues, especially in areas involving renewable energy, sustainable development, and environmental finance. Her policy analysis work includes the Texas Renewable Energy Credit Program, as well as a variety of other environmental finance programs for acid rain, ozone depletion, and climate change. She has a Bachelor's of Science in Chemical Engineering from Texas A&M and a Doctorate of Philosophy in Global Affairs from Rutgers University. And I asked Ann to join us on the show today because this is an area that, uh, all, while it may not be the concern for many people when you the light switch works and the TV comes on and the water runs, uh, it definitely became front and center as a concern of uh, Texans this past week. And of course, it has political implications as well, as we've seen the response uh, that's happening. And so welcome, Ann. We're glad to have you on the show today to, to discuss and, and really kind of dig a little deeper into some of the backgrounds uh, background of this issue. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we just want to, I think, start with the main question, which, of course, everybody's been trying to answer this question since uh, all of this happened uh, a little over a week and a half ago. What caused this? I mean, what was really at the, because if you go on social media and that's a challenge here and I try to help our, our listeners correct some of the things they see on there. Uh, I think everybody from President Biden uh, to uh, uh, my next door neighbor uh, and their excessive use of electricity was blamed for what happened here. And I think people just don't understand how, how all some of this works. So could you give us a little background on, on what led up and what really caused this event that we experienced? Well, at the simple level, it is simply that liquids froze. And when I say that, 
and I mean that liquids froze, there's really two liquids of concern here. One is that natural gas pipes froze. And so supply to a facility um, and supply inside the facility uh, froze and it forced plants offline because it didn't have the fuel needed to run. I think the thing that people are forgetting is that the majority of our fossil fuel fired electricity generation also requires water as an integral part of the um, manufacturing process. And at specific plants, water pipes froze. So you didn't just have wind turbine plants go offline because the wind turbines froze. You had natural gas plants go offline because the natural gas pipeline uh, supply wasn't there. But you also had coal and nuclear uh, power plants who also went offline, not because they had problems getting fuel, but because the water was freezing in the pipes inside the system. And so the simple answer is, the pipes weren't winterized properly down to that kind of temperature. Uh, the much more complicated issue is that um, not only did we not have that pipe freeze, our infrastructure wasn't able to correct or to adjust in a, in a quick and timely fashion. So when, when we're looking at that, people are trying to understand. I mean, of course, everybody knows that this was an extreme weather event to have this uh, a low of temperatures in Texas. I mean, I don't I was out of the state for about seven years uh, back in the uh, early part of the of the, the first decade. Uh, but other than that, thinking back in my time in Texas, I don't remember uh, temperatures getting this low uh, across the state as a whole. Of course, you know, we look back in and you see less population, uh, uh, less energy demand, which is another factor that we, we certainly see now. Um, what, in, in trying to understand this too, is it something that's a, that, that we need to understand as a one-off in that, okay, this happens maybe like once in a generation or once in a half century or so, and, and, and does that, uh, the, the fact that that could happen again uh, counter the costs that would be involved in saying winterizing, doing things that they do in northern states in order to be able to continue to provide electricity when you have this extreme weather? Or is this a part of a, of a larger kind of challenge the state has in, uh, in, in supplying energy and enough types of energy or the way that the supply is structured uh, to make sure that we can get through something like this? Well, while I'd like to say that, that this is a one-off event, if you go back and look at uh, Texas and grid reliability, what you'll find out is that Texas is actually one of the states that loses all or part of its power grid on a semi-regular basis. Now, it's not always to winter impacts, um, but I think there are some bigger picture issues with grid reliability that are going to be looked at uh, for at least this legislative session and probably well into the future. Um, so uh, you've actually asked two or three questions uh, or implied two or three questions in here. Uh, and so, you know, the kind of first simple one is, no, I don't think Texans should treat this as a one-off kind of, of effect that's never going to happen again. Um, unfortunately, this is not the worst winner that Texans have seen on record. Um, this does happen sporadically throughout our history. Secondly, uh, Texas is a growing state. And as you have more people move into the state, you have more um, demand on the electricity and that all important margin um, shrinks. And it doesn't just shrink in the winter, it, it shrinks in the summer. So I think there's some long-term um, supply issues that will need to be addressed. And then the third uh, facet of this that I think you've implied is that there is a strain of of uh, theoretical approaches dealing with climate change that effectively says that climate change alters our weather patterns um, in order and makes them effectively more harsh. And in order to take care of people properly, your system needs to be prepared to handle a wider variety of impacts than it has in the past. And it's not just um, winter weather impacts, it's also uh, summer demand, and it's also the strength of the hurricanes, which has also been known to take out power lines, especially on the Texas Gulf Coast for um, longer periods of time. So, so the focus of all of this in the, in, in the week and so or so that's followed has turned to the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, uh, ERCOT, as we've seen over and over again in the news where uh, you have a, um, 
uh, kind of an independent uh, uh, agency here operating uh, that really elects its own. It, 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 it perpetuates itself by choosing people to be on this particular council. Of course, it's overseen by the Public Utility uh, Commission of Texas. But uh, ERCOT made the news in so many different ways, especially not only in the decision they had to make to start these rolling blackouts and to try to to to, to make this work in some way, but then also because uh, in the days that followed, we heard that we were near a catastrophe that could have taken down the grid in Texas. Is, uh, possibly for months because of the damage that could have been done to uh, the system if they had not uh, taken these measures. Uh, so I guess one focus here is on ERCOT in terms of how Texas manages its electricity grid. And uh, I guess the question here is, um, is this part of the solution and part of the problem? I mean, a, a direction has been here that Texas wants to, it seems, wants to manage its own resources. Uh, we didn't see other states uh, that had some of this extreme weather having the challenges that happened in Texas. So I think part of it here is helping people understand why, why did this happen in Texas in relation to the way we manage uh, the the provision of electricity through this kind of coordinated effort, if I'm understanding it correctly, because it brings together all the the providers, and then and then of course customers. As as the law changed, what in I think '99, where they had selection that they could choose the servicers, the people who uh, 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 they basically pay their bill to uh, that that are uh, buying power uh, from these in these different markets that are there. Uh, I'm, I know I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand it in my, my own way, but also I think it's important that we help people understand how this actually works. So I think let's start with a review of the basics. If you're not familiar with um, the structure of the electricity generation infrastructure in the United States, in essence, Texas separates into three interconnected markets, uh, what we call the Western interconnection, the Eastern interconnection, and the Texas interconnection. And it's very difficult, uh, but not impossible, to send power across those three separate markets. There is some interconnectivity between Texas and Oklahoma. There's some interconnectivity, very limited, uh, between uh, Texas and Mexico. But by and large, one of the rules is that you can't send power across those three groupings. Within most of those groupings, in the Western and in the Eastern, there are multiple markets um, that are overseen by some kind of um, ISO. So you've got, say, for example, the California ISO or the Southwestern ISO, and they can send power back and forth between those two markets because there is a physical connection of the electricity line. The same thing is also true on the Eastern seaboard. And the Eastern market is geographically the largest. There are multiple markets on the Eastern coast where if there is a problem in what we call the PJM market, you can turn around to one of its neighboring markets um, and say, please send power here. Texas is different. In Texas, the Texas interconnect and the ERCOT market are exactly identical. And so we didn't have the option to turn around and to say to one of our neighboring markets, we're in trouble, send us power, because the interconnections just don't work that way. Um, the question has been whether or not that is a good thing or a bad thing. And the answer is, it depends. There are times like the time we just have um, last week where that lack of interconnectivity badly hurt the state of Texas. But if you go farther back into our history, the fact that Texas is separate also protects us because there have been times when we've had blackouts on the Eastern market and that lack of physical connectivity um, ended up protecting Texas from suffering those blackouts as well. So I think from a physical structure of how the market works, um, to say that one is inherently good or one is inherently bad, I think I would just merely say, well, it's just different. It's the way Texas is, has chosen to set things up. Um, but I also think you're asking some questions here about political culture. And Texans 
wanting to have their own grid historically. Um, and I don't think that that's going to change, um, interestingly, after um, after this setup. I think people are increasingly viewing what happened in Texas as being mismanagement um, by ERCOT. And there's also been um, some considerable conversation around the fact that a number of uh, members of the ERCOT board not only were not from the state of Texas, um, at least one of them was not does not live inside the United States. And so I think there's been a sense among Texans that uh, part of the reason why ERCOT didn't do or act the way Texans wanted it to is because there were people um, who were on the ERCOT board who were not um, immediately familiar with the state of Texas. So, so related to the board, um, what is the benefit of having this independent council in a way of, of managing this? I mean, I know it. a lot of it connects with industry, the, the people who are on the board and so on. It, it, it's the Public Utilities Commission is, is appointed by the governor. So that there's the connection there to the, the state agency inf- infrastructure. Uh, but uh, but uh, I think maybe this is going back a little bit to the, the creation of, of something like this in order to uh, 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 be able to have this uh, management of electricity and the grid and so forth in the state uh, and, and, and have this kind of independence with it, having its, you know, benefits. And, and, and then of course we saw the challenges, but, but um, what, what, what is the kind of the rationale in managing it the way that we do uh, and having this distinction between a, 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 because this has evolved over time in, 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 in the last few decades in terms of how we've changed responsibilities and kind of shifted things to oversee this part of it as energy demands have grown, as Texas produces a significant I mean, a large amount of energy uh, in and of itself through a variety of ways. Uh, maybe that's something that, that is helpful in understanding the way forward. I'm not sure that I understand exactly what the question mm-hmm. is. Um, ERCOT is technically a 501c4 nonprofit agency, and it exists to represent the voices and management of, by and large, suppliers of electricity. Um, and then under our deregulation structure, people who resell that electricity to individual Texas consumers. It has served primarily as um, what I would call a technocratic um, institution that is filled with people who have uh, technical knowledge of electricity generation and some significant public administration, public management uh, system within the state of Texas. I think if there's kind of a fatal flaw that I've seen in the early days of the management of the state, um, it's that there was a lack of creativity or a lack of understanding what the worst case scenario might look like um, in the state of Texas. I think Texans tend to think of the worst case scenarios as being some kind of disastrous hurricane striking the Gulf Coast and not necessarily an Arctic cold front uh, coming in. And from everything we've seen, it just looks like that um, people didn't consider the fact that, yes, you could have pipelines freeze and not only do pipelines freeze, everything in the pipelines freeze, including water. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the wind turbines. There's been a lot of talk about the natural gas supply. Um, I haven't heard all that much about the fact that the the plants were not went, didn't winterize their water piping. And you have to wonder uh, from a technical level um, why that one facet was overlooked because it would seem to me that that would be kind of winter 101. Um, and that to me is the question I'm looking to see um, answered in the bigger picture of, of things. So, so along that line, when you're looking at something that is attempting to keep this in, in a, I would say, rather than it be government controlling directly utilities, uh, you've got corporations out there who are, 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 are manufacturing electricity in, in various ways, uh, you, of course, the cost is a factor here as well, because, uh, you're, you're kind of playing, uh, uh, a, a kind of a long-term, not, not necessarily a game, but you're, you're taking risks just as you would in any business and knowing that, okay, we could have conditions that would, uh, necessitate certain things like winterizing pipes and so forth. Is, is this, is this an industry problem now in terms of looking at the fact that this can happen in Texas, or is this a, a, 
a both and where government's going to have to be involved because I could see one thing coming out of this. If, if companies, providers are having to, or manufacturers are having to look at the expense of doing something like this, that's going to impact energy prices. Uh, and on the other side, there's a political ramification of this as well, as we've already seen with the governor. Uh, and we'll talk about, you know, that in the legislature in a moment, but uh, where, where does this kind of thing fall when you're talking about a, something that's kind of viewed as a public service by the, by the public, but it really is something that is private industry providing a, a good here uh, that is needed, that, that people need in order to, to, and society to function. Well, I think you just framed it exactly correctly. On one hand here, there is undoubtedly a legislative failure in that the Texas ledge probably should have uh, ordered the electric utility uh, generators to winterize a long time ago. This is not the first time we've seen these kinds of problems in the winter, although this is certainly um, the largest scale we've seen them on in terms of number of facilities impacted. And then I think the second question is correct. And once you foresee electric generating utilities to winterize, something that is incredibly expensive. Um, What happens to the cost of electricity in the state of Texas? Um, How long do you allow companies to recover those costs? Um, is it? I think you can control the cost by, by spreading out the recovery over a longer stretch of time rather than making everything uh, be paid for over the cost of two or three years. Maybe the time horizon is 10 to 15 years, so you lessen the impact. Um, is this a grant program uh, that uh, uh, the state of Texas wants to put forward to start winterizing at some of our smaller facilities? I, I think that's a, a design policy design question um, that probably needs to be asked. Uh, But at the end of the day, Texas is looking at um, some kind of large bill, um, not only to make up for what happened, but to try to figure out how to finance what we want in the future. Uh, Because quite frankly, um, even if Texas chose to interconnect, I don't think those interconnections are going to be sufficient to protect supply and demand, especially as you head farther south across the state. Well, you know, we saw um, a number of sessions ago where the state provided uh, loans that were guaranteed by the rainy day fund to water districts and, and water suppliers to try to uh, upgrade their systems so they were more efficient, kind of looking at, which again, that's another problem. I mean, that we not uh, um, uh, really come to grips with. I mean, five years ago, we had a drought, a lot of challenges and so forth, a lot of adjustments, but not necessarily for the long term in order to meet the water demands, uh, the growing water demands uh, uh, of the state. And, and you see something like this as well as to whether the, the, the legislature will kind of move forward with something on this. And I, th- I think that leads to my next question uh, in looking at the governor who responded to this uh, and what really role he has. I mean, of course, he appoints the people to the the, the public utility commission uh, uh, or and, and, and does the gov- is there much more than the governor can do other than declaring this an emergency uh, item on on the agenda of the legislature? Uh where does the task lie, I think, with the legislature in going forward? I think you, 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 you mentioned a few things here. Do you think that something will come out of this legislative session? What, what do you see may happen in the weeks and months ahead that may set this on a course to try to address these issues? Well, I think there's kind of two issues here. I hope the Texas Ledge deals with this. And now the question is going to be, um, where does the money come from? Uh, because there's other several competing priorities here. And then the one we haven't mentioned, we've got a number of school districts who have busted pipes um, who are going to have to replace those pipes. And in rural areas, um, that's going to be a challenge to fundraise that. So um, when you have zero-sum games in your budgeting process, which Texas does, uh, what one group gets, another group does not, I think there's some very real um, challenges and balancing acts that the Texas Ledge is going to have to decide on um, with um, education and with COVID-19 funding, also competing for uh, funding on our list, uh, along with you know welfare services, given the number of Texans who are uh, unemployed right now. 
Um, so I don't know that I've got any particular crystal ball to say that uh, uh, Texas uh, wind rising wins on those priorities. Um, my guess is that the immediate needs of the people and the citizenry will come again uh, before um, some kind of um, preparation for a winter event that may not happen again for a couple of years, unfortunately. Um, and so I think, you know, I don't see funding for this being a priority for the state legislature, even though um, it is something that we need and will need before the next winter storm, whatever that may be. Um, and then with regard to um, the second question that was kind of implied in here, can the governor do something else? I think at this point, the ball is in the Texas Ledge's court. You know, the powers of the governor are relatively limited in this state. Um, and other than um, removing some appointees or replacing some appointees at the Public Utility Commission in Texas, there's not a lot he can do while the legislature is in session. Um, and so, again, I think uh, really at this point, I'd want to see what um, Dan Patrick is thinking. And then, of course, what um, our new Speaker of the House is thinking as well. So we know that that this will continue to be a political issue. Uh, uh, the challenges here, you know, on the one hand, when we know the dynamics there, that uh, utility companies are are, are big lobbyists uh, and have been to try to keep uh, cost off off of their uh, uh, books so that they can uh, make revenue. Uh, we don't really, I mean, the consumers taxed on energy usage. I mean, we 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 do have some uh, some things that are okay. that that. Are there that could be be looked at, but it, uh, again, it to me it seems like looking at the past history of this that there's not really the motivation mm -hmm. to put any of this cost back onto um, uh, the companies themselves that that manufacture the electricity, unless it's done through like we talked about maybe something long term where it's financed in there, and then the legislature kind of forces them to say, okay, we we can't go through this again. We've got to put a mechanism in place. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm having taught Texas government for a number of years. I'm a little concerned about the time that they have to actually really look into and engage with something like that in this session uh, to, to think of what outcome uh, may be of benefit to the people of the state. Uh, without this just kind of saying, okay, well, we got through this winter. Let's hope it doesn't happen next winter because the legislature will meet again in two years. Let, let's deal with this on a long-term basis in terms of giving it some attention and, and seeing what needs to be done. Uh, to me, that fits the pattern. Uh, again, I don't know because part of this with an issue like this is it how quickly does it go away uh, in terms of, of, of the time frame that the legislature's in session and, and what they could deal with? Or as we, we already know, we're probably going to have a special session on redistricting. Could this be an issue that's pushed a little further down the road, just not not two years? I don't, I don't know if you see anything in that scenario that, that uh, it, either does that make sense in understanding the way the legislature works or uh, or, or do you see other aspects of that that are that are important now? Well, I think there's probably two or three things that need to enter into um, some kind of analysis. One is that um, Texans are going to get bills for this, and some of the bills are going to hit immediately, and some of the bills are going to be clearly spread out over the course of time. There's numerous court cases that have been filed that are going to keep this in the news. Uh, the second part of this is that, um, theoretically speaking, Abbott's running for re-election. Um, and what does he do um, with regards to this? And does this last long enough to become an election issue in 2022? Um, and if I rather suspect because we're going to have the special sessions anyway, and because it is an election year, I think Abbott looks much more in tune with the desires of Texans to call the special session to deal with this rather than to try to go back to a business as usual session and run for re-election and governor um, in the near future. Um, and so I think some of it uh, may well end up on, on what Abbott decides he wants um, as far as campaign election conditions, assuming, of course, that he's running for re-election in 2022, because at this point, I don't know that that's a given either. 
Very true. I mean, we're seeing a number of people as COVID lingers and we're trying to navigate the pandemic, the just the tremendous stress it's putting on public officials and trying to to, to manage through this. Think, thinking ahead then, what do, do you see anything coming out of this that has a major impact on energy policy in the state? Uh, and I know that's a very broad question because energy policy covers just so many different areas. But it, is this, is this a, an event that means that, yes, we need to make adjustments, we need to winterize, we need to be prepared that this is going to happen again? Or does this cause any kind of engagement with the way that, we, that we're doing this, the way that we're managing it, uh, the, the, the way we use all different types of energy from nuclear to, uh, to, to gas plants to wind energy? Uh, where, where do you see us going? And, and that may be something that's already a course that's set. And does that change? You know, I don't know that the future of energy policy in the state of Texas is something that's fixed and unchanged. Um, interestingly enough, the, the one I've heard, um, I don't know the most, is um, do we need another nuclear power plant? Um, and I think you've got proponents of unpopular energy types um, who perceive that they have an advantage here and that they're going to press it. Um, are they going to make it through the public policy process or in facility siting process? Um, um, I don't know. I, I don't know that Texas would want a fifth uh, nuclear power plant, but certainly there's an opportunity that hasn't been there in the past to at least float the idea. Um, I think um, Texans' uh, perception of renewable energy is damaged more so than anything else right now. Um, interestingly enough, natural gas uh, seems to be holding out better, even though in terms of percentages, more natural gas plants went offline than than uh, wind turbines uh, did. But, um, you know, whoever speaks for, first frequently shapes their discourse, and, and that's the direction that the conversation has taken uh, for the moment. Um, in terms of kind of this bigger question question of energy policy, you know, energy policy isn't just made up of the decisions that governments make. It's also made uh, consists of the decisions individuals make. Uh, virtually everybody I've talked to has some kind of plan um, to insulate uh, themselves from uh, a second impact in the future. A lot of people discovered that that they have low hanging fruit. Um, in and around property in places where people are fortunate enough to own their own property. And so really one of the things I've heard is a lot of home repair um, and pipe insulation kinds of, of things that um, make an impact under certain circumstances. And so you've got not only the top-down process, but you also have the bottom-up resiliency questions too. And in this state, um, I've got a little more faith in the the bottom-up processes, that's te technically where Texans have been better at things than they have on the on, than on the top-down uh, uh, processes. So I think you'll see people take both approaches. Um, again, individual management is probably going to be more than the, the top-down, you know, big infrastructure pictures than anything else. Well, on, on this topic, too, I, I, uh, I do post articles or things that are helpful to people in kind of understanding this. If if there are some links to some things that uh, you think would uh, be beneficial to people, uh, please send those along to me. Uh, I, I certainly can connect them to, you know, the ERCOT has a website if they want to learn about how, how that works as well. But I think some of these larger questions and issues related to energy policy, it's not something that people concern themselves with as much, except when they're they get a high utility bill because uh, it's the, the the cold of winter or the heat of summer, uh, or we have something like this happen. Uh, and and of course the the likelihood on a smaller scale is what we usually see. But having something statewide like this is is certainly uh, uh, significant and and is going to be in the, our conversation uh, for a while uh, to come. Uh, uh, Anna, I want to thank you for joining uh, me today on the show. Uh, this is very engaging, and it's something that we probably should come back to as we see the legislature responding and, and what decisions that they make in the months ahead and whether that's a special session or something comes out of this legislative session. So I'd certainly like to have you back when we see some uh, uh, act or output uh, policy output by government in order to kind of engage with that and see how, uh, how it connects to these issues. 
Well, thank you. I've enjoyed uh, being with you and, and talking uh, with you about this issue today, and I'd be happy to come back in the future. Great. Thank you. This is Dr. Ann Eggleston, who is an assistant professor of political science and director of the Center for Environmental Studies here at Tarleton State. Thank you, Ann. We're going to go to a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with more on politics. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Tea for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsay Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and we're glad you're joining us today and certainly listening about that timely issue of what happened in the past couple of weeks and the fallout from it related to uh, electricity, energy production, uh, the outages that we had across Texas, uh, the challenges that we had with providing electricity, especially during a major a winter storm that we experienced, uh, and what is the path going forward? There's a lot of speculation about that, and we'll just have to wait and see what uh, elected officials, uh, energy companies, and so forth do uh, in navigating that ahead. But we'll certainly stay with that issue, and we will be back to bring you more uh, information and engagement with this. And I also want to affirm that we'll put some things on the Facebook page that's on politics with Eric Morrow uh, that will help you to understand a little bit of how this is all structured and uh, to be able to engage with that a little bit more and to understand how something that is so critical, electricity, uh, that we all often take for granted uh, is uh, uh, something that we need to be aware of how this is done and how it's managed and what is the role of government, especially in Texas, related to that. I want to move to the national level for the last uh, segment of the show today, uh, and that is to talk about uh, related to political transition in Washington, D.C., with the new Biden administration, with the transition in power between uh, parties, uh, and of course, the first hundred days, and and we hope to have Dr. Cross back in a few weeks to talk about the significance of this first 100 days of an administration, uh, and how that has uh, been uh, uh, looked at historically, and then what does it mean now in terms of what the Biden administration is trying to do. Uh, but I want to talk about something that's kind of in the mix of all of that. Uh, this past week, uh, or it's in this current issue for the month of March, but this past week, Washingtonian, uh, the magazine from Washington, D.C., came out with its list of Washington's most influential people, uh, which is a list of 250 experts and advocates outside of government. Okay, These are not people who are current government officials, but the ones who are policy shapers, the ones who impact uh, what is going to be done by government, uh, what is going to happen in the policy arena uh, in the, the years to come, especially during the Biden administration. And as we know, the decisions that are made now will have a significant impact going forward in a wide range of areas. And so we're going to look at that in a moment, and I will post a link to that. It will be available on the Facebook page as well so that you can look at this and, and get a better idea and understanding of what we're talking about. But in the world of politics uh, and policy making, where these intersect, is where you find people who are engaged with all different uh, uh, aspects of our uh, life and, and economy and uh, uh, social uh, uh, areas, media, uh, all of these people who are out there in various facets of, of American public life uh, in some way, and that they engage with government in different ways because of the policy uh, outputs they want, because of what they want government to do or to change, uh, because of what they want a government to, to do that 
that has an outcome that is favorable uh, to them. And so this is a part of politics that's not always front and center uh, for most of us in the rest of the country, unless we're engaged with government and politics in Austin or in Washington, D.C. Uh, but it is a part of political life that is 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 the kind of the normal routine, but it is also a, a part of political life that changes regularly. Uh, there are transitions, as we saw, as as you have power transition between party and between administrations. That means that this changes. Uh, if it if it doesn't change party, it means that some people, new people may come in and new, other people may be out and some of the alignment of relationships may stay the same. Uh, what we often see when there is party transition in the White House or in Congress is that we see that alignment change significantly. And of course, that was the significance of not only uh, Joe Biden winning the, the, the White House, but of Congress, uh, the, the, the Democratic Party gaining control of Congress, already having it in the House, but now having that 50-50 split in the Senate with, of course, the vice president now, that is significant. It's just, it's huge because it changes that realignment. It means that a, a party and its agenda, de- depending on the issues that resonate with the president uh, and with his role in power, uh, have a better chance of being accomplished. And thus the, the alignment of these structures and, and what I like to refer to the man, this is the, the literature on, on policymaking. There are issue networks. There are people that are tied in that represent interest groups and advocacy groups. They have constituents that are from nonprofits and, and civic and social organizations to uh, private companies uh, in, in various areas of our uh, economy and industry. Uh, all of this begins to align in, in different ways depending on the outcome of those elections. And so it began when Biden was elected president. It continued when uh, the two senators from Georgia were elected as uh, as being Democrats and, of course, joining the Senate to change that alignment there. So now that the Democrats are the majority party in both chambers, they have the likelihood that they're going to be able to push things through uh, on their the party agenda and on the agenda that connects with their constituents. So again, this this creates these issue. It changes these issue networks. Here we were months ago, a Trump administration, a Senate controlled by Republicans, a House controlled by Democrats, and these issue net- networks look quite different. Uh, because of the presidential administration, especially related to Senate committees and what the agenda was there. And this is where we see some of the challenges sometimes with a split Congress. When you have one chamber controlled by one party and the other chamber controlled by the other, is that these issue networks become a little more challenging on on major issues, on, on, on some issues, not always all. So what we've seen now with this transition are issue networks that are, that are more in alignment, even though, as we, we do have to say, as with Democrats, as we would with Republicans, there is a tremendous amount of party diversity. Uh, and so issues that are favored by one part of the party may not be by the other, but still there is a sense of, of identity in here in unity and engagement that, that aligns these networks. And, and so what we mean by networks are not just the informal political actors. So informal would be that they're not set up by the Constitution, uh, interest groups, uh, advocacy groups, political parties, uh, constituents, uh, but it's also those formal actors. So congressional committees, the members of Congress, the agencies of government that are responsible for policy implementation. Uh, This is all now a part of that. And you know, in the executive, in the agencies of government that are in the executive branch, that the leadership of all of those agencies is going to transition to those people who are nominated by the president or selected by those that he nominates and that are approved by the Senate. So so there is a significant amount of of realignment going on now uh, because of the uh, election of Joe Biden. As president. So I want to turn to this article because I think it's something that if you're not familiar with how uh, this works, about how it is about uh, power, how, uh, who has power, uh, who has the ability to use that power, whether that be in Congress, uh, whether that be in the White House, or whether that be people who are in influential positions 
in a wide range of areas uh, that can then connect with those in government. Uh, remember, too, there's a connection here related to resources, uh, to uh, support for different policies, but then also the, the, the resources that are there that are needed for elections uh, and, and connecting with constituents in a way uh, that uh, moves you toward a favorable outcome in the next election cycle. Because now we're starting to turn, and this is, I think, where 100 days becomes critical, is that after that 100 days, the focus now begins to be on those midterm elections, uh, which will be coming up uh, in 2022. The article in the Washingtonian uh, actually divides this 250 most influential people into 16 different groups. So 16 categories that represent really the major policy areas that, that they see that the Biden administration and Congress will be addressing. And so these range, I'm not going to read through the full list because you can see the article online, but it starts with antitrust law, which is something that is going to be given attention in the Biden administration and banking and finance, business and labor, uh, civil rights and criminal justice, all the way to healthcare, immigration, national security and defense, tech and telecom. I mean, all of these are major policy areas uh, that are they're in existence anyway. It's just that there's not always things moving or it's not moving in alignment uh, with a party when they come into power. And that's what we see here, having a, a one-term president now being replaced by a president who is from another party. And of course, all of this realignment that's going on will then al align that agenda of the party and of those people in power uh, with uh, uh, the the outcomes that they want. And so that is why this is this is changing. And so I want to 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 just give you a little bit of of idea of this uh, when you look down in some of these sections. So let's talk uh, banking and finance. I mean, maybe that's that, that might not be the the sexiest subject to talk about here, uh, but you see some uh, uh, people uh, in with different companies. And that's what I like about this article is it connects you back to the company or organization that they're involved in. So in banking and finance, we see people. Uh, like Naomi Camper, who is the chief policy officer of the American Bankers Association. Uh, you see uh, Richard Hunt, Consumer Bankers Association president and CFO. Uh, you have Aaron Klein, who is a senior fellow that writes on these topics at the Brookings Institute. So you have think tanks. Um, you have uh, Bill Nelson, Bank Policy Institute. He's the uh, executive vice president and chief economist. Uh, so think tanks, institutes, uh, organizations that are giving a, a scholarly study uh, to um, uh, critical issues. Uh, sometimes they do have a, a particular driving ideology that, that guides that and how that they look at it. But, but these are, are groups that are going to be engaging with any kind of policy change uh, that's going to be proposed uh, by people in Congress. Uh, again, another uh, grouping that they have here is business and labor. So they have the senior director of global trade policy from Pfizer. Pfizer is a big name now, has been in pharmaceuticals, but because of the vaccine and because of the potential that has and what the needs are in this global pandemic. Uh, uh, Benjamin Applebaum, a writer of the, and the editorial board of the New York Times, very influential in mass media. Uh, Tom Benet, National Restaurant Association, president and CEO. Um, you have uh, Joshua Bolton, Business Roundtable President and CEO, Neil Bradley of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, Dan Bryant of Walmart, a Senior Vice President of Global Public Policy and Global Affairs or Government Affairs. So you see uh, these kinds of people who are uh, significant in that area that are going to be very influential major players consulting in some ways are being brought in uh, or, or trying to influence and impact uh, the policies that are going to be happening or, or developing uh, in uh, this the, the months ahead. Civil rights and criminal justice. Uh, you have um, Melanie Campbell, National Coalition on Black Civic Participation. Uh, David Cole, the National Legal Director of the ACLU. Eric Holder, uh, Attorney General under the Obama administration, but is a partner at the law firm of Covington and Burlington. 
uh, Van Jones, who's a media personality, uh, but is also the CEO of the Reform Alliance. Some of you may have seen him on uh, CNN. Uh, Hillary Shelton, uh, the director of the Washington Bureau of the NAACP. Uh, so again, you can see how these organizations align with the topics. Uh, we look at further down at education is uh, one that, that will probably be given some significant attention. Uh, Mildred Garcia, American Association of State Colleges and Universities. Uh, Rick Hess, American Enterprise Institute is a resident scholar. Uh, Rodriguez Murray, United Negro College Fund. Becky Pringle, National Education Association. Uh, Randy Weingarten, American Federation of Teachers. Okay, so along with this, and I think this is what's unique about a list like this, is it really connects you to those organizations, those national organizations that have representation in, in Washington. They have offices there. Uh, they connect with lawmakers. They follow policy. Uh, this is great because you, you can go to their websites and you can see not only their agenda, you can see the policy issues that are important to them, but you can see what they're going to advocate. How, what are they engaged with? What are they attempting to accomplish uh, in the opportunities that they have to uh, meet with and, and get information to uh, those who are uh, have political power, those who are uh, in office. Uh, Energy is another group here. We have um, a couple of the other groups include good government. Uh, we mentioned healthcare. Here you have uh, the vice president of federal government affairs of Johnson & Johnson, Jane Adams, uh, Stuart Butler from Brookings, Michael Cannon from the Cato Institute, Director of Health Policy Studies, uh, Chip Davis, Healthcare Distribution Alliance, uh, Dan Diamond, he's the National Health Reporter of the Washington Post, Megan Donovan, Guttmacher Institute, which is uh, one I've used some of their materials and classes to talk about different health issues. Um, uh, you have Scott Gottlieb of the American Enterprise Institute, uh, Guinevere Kenny of the Urban Institute, uh, and then, of course, you have businesses like Humana and Cigna, uh, their representatives, AARP, very, very powerful group in terms of its uh, membership and its engagement with policy that affects uh, senior citizens. There's academics in here as well. Uh, Lynn Nichols from George Mason University um, uh, and a few, few others that are from uh, different institutes or uh, uh, universities and uh, institutes related to those universities uh, in Washington, D.C. So I just wanted to bring this to your attention. It's something that takes a little time to, to go through uh, and it's something you can come back to. I, I will post it on the Facebook page because I really think it's something that we all should be aware of of how these kind of issue networks function and how do things move forward? How do things get done? Who are the people who are advocating for different policies in, in different areas? And this is just kind of a glimpse of it. It's a glimpse at the seat of power of Washington DC where government is and the groups that are represented there that have a presence there uh, that are trying to have a significant influence. I wanna thank you for joining me today on politics. We're right here each week, Sunday at noon. And you can also listen to us on tarletonradio.com. That's KTRL 90.5 FM. And you can also listen to this uh, episode in its entirety on SoundCloud uh, after the show has aired, uh, as well as download it as a podcast. So we're available in multiple formats so that you can engage with very critical and timely issues on the show each and every week. I look forward to being back with you again next week as we move forward with our focus on on issues related to the Biden administration, the state legislature in Texas, and, and other things that are impacting our lives in a variety of ways. Thank you for joining us today. Carlson Radio Network podcast with production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Carlson Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.